Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Center for Strategic and International Studies. My name is Heather Conley. I direct our Europe program here. And we are absolutely delighted to welcome Minister Josep Borrell, uh, Foreign Minister of Spain, Minister of Foreign Affairs, European Union and Cooperation. That's a very long title. Um, he, uh, was, he became Foreign Minister of June of last year. Many, though, know you, Minister Borrell, from your long-standing service at the European Parliament, having served as President of the European Parliament from 2004 to 2007 and led some very important uh, committee work uh, at the European Union from 2007 to 2009. Minister Borrell was also, in a previous socialist government, the Minister of Economy in the early 1980s. So a very distinguished uh, service and leadership in the European Union. Minister Borrell was very kind. We decided we would dispense from those formal remarks and just have a fantastic conversation with the minister. When he came out the door, he looked at and he saw all of your smiling faces and he went, oh boy, there are a lot of people here, a lot of people. We have a lot of questions for you, uh, minister. And uh, my, my list is long, but I wanted to turn to you just to say a few opening remarks and then we'll attack my list. And after we get through my list of questions, I have a feeling we have some questions from our great audience. So with that, welcome colleagues. Minister Burrell, welcome, please. Over to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much. I am a little bit impressed. I didn't expect so many people. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you very much for being here. It's, uh, for me, I'm coming from South America, and it's quite impressive also to see the big contrast between Washington and the cities of South America. I am also very impressed by this beautiful building and uh, for all the work you are doing. Thanks for inviting me. I am here for the 17th anniversary of the NATO. It will be a good occasion to talk about the uh, transatlantic relations and the role that Spain is playing on that. Also about the European Union prospects with the Brexit and the next European elections in a couple of months from now. Let me just say before I start talking how important is for us the transatlantic relation. I don't have to insist on that. It's the most important relation that we have. Our citizens in both sides of the Atlantic are very much depending on the good health of this relation. One can say, just for the sake of argument, that the transatlantic relation is a very good one, but everybody is aware that uh, with the Trump administration this relation has been put into question. No? We are not very much used to the fact that the President of the United States says that uh, Europeans are foes or that uh, the export of cars from Germany are a kind of threat to the national security of the United States, or that the Brexit is a good idea and other member states have to follow the same examples. No? But apart from that, I think that we have a, a look on the future. And in spite of the current problems, to be very much aware that the Europeans and the Americans share the same values, the same understandings about freedom, the, Right of, uh, the rule of law 
and our capacity to defend human rights all over the world. And I think that this long prospect approach is much more important than the problems that we are facing today related to one administration or another. But we don't have to forget this, this situation which affects us and pushes to some of the European countries to say that the Europeans have to build our own strategic capacities and to build an European army. And sometimes it's misunderstood on the other side of the Atlantic. What does it mean? It means that we want to get rid of the, of the NATO and no longer to participate in a military alliance with the United States, for sure not, for sure not. But it also means that we are facing new threats for the Europeans. The old threat we had in the past was the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union doesn't exist in a long time. And we are facing new threats coming from the south and the east, but the east are very much related with the fight against between the Arab countries themselves, with the emergence role of Iran and Russia also coming back to the international stage. So we are, it means that we are living in a new world, a completely new world. You know better than I because you spend your time in studying about it. But the front line, it was once upon the time in the middle of Europe. And today the, the front line is in the Indo-Pacific area. There are almost no American soldiers in Europe. After the World War, the Europeans had no other solution than to put ourselves under the protective umbrella of the United States power. No other solution. But today we start understanding that uh, there are other worries for the United States, that there are asymmetric threats, and we should be more united in order to participate better, better, in a transatlantic relation and to complement each other. So let's talk about it because I think there are some misunderstanding on both sides of the Atlantic. And on the eve of the European elections, which I'm sure will be perturbed by foreign inter interferences, this is a good occasion for me to talk about it. Well, thank Minister, you. thank you so much. And you're absolutely right. You're here in Washington. We're preparing for the NATO Foreign Ministerial uh, on Thursday, on April 4th, which is exactly to the day, the 70th anniversary of NATO. The day before, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg will give a, a speech to a joint session of Congress, which is a, a very important honor as well. So I wanted to ask your reflections about Spain's view of NATO. It has been decades of American presidents asking Europe to spend more on its defense spending. Today, Spain spends 0.93% of its GDP on defense spending, although you have a plan to get to 2% by 2024. Help an American audience understand um, Spain's commitment to the alliance through its defense spending. What is that, that plan that you see? It's certainly going to be something I know President Trump is going to be very interested in. Yeah. You know, it wasn't the NATO meeting uh, when President Trump, in a very tough way, required Mrs. Angela Merkel to spend more on defense, no? And let's say in a very, let's say, tough way, no? Say that we Europeans, we have to spend more on defense because we are uh, free riding on the American efforts. 
Well, there are three ways of spending more or being more prepared on defense issues. First, for sure, to spend more. Secondly, to increase capacities, which is not always related with the amount of money you spend. And third, the capacity of deploying troops in active missions all over the world. The case of Spain is very clear about that. If you compare this, the Spanish expenditure on defense with the Greek expenditure on defense, they spend much more than us. They are more than 2%. But if you analyze the structure of this expenditure, then you see that there is a big, a big part of this expenditure in Greece which is going to pensions for retired army men or women. Well, you spend in defense, yes, but it does increase the capacity. In the case of Spain, it's much more the part of the expenditure who goes to really increasing capacities than not paying retired army people. And secondly, Spain is a country that participates the more to all missions of NATO and European missions, keep peace missions all over the world. We have a very active army. We are present everywhere, from Lithuania to the Sahel, to Afghanistan, to Iraq, to Lebanon. I think these kind of things have to be taken into account because you spend it on defense go to pay pensions and you keep your army in the barracks is not the same thing that spending money on increasing capacities and using your army being deployed all over the world, from Somalia with the Navy to Lithuania with Air Force, or with the Sahel with army troops, uh, land troops, or Lebanon. So we have a strong capacity of participating. We are the most active country, both from the European country, both from the European missions and from the NATO missions. Is there one thing right now that concerns you the most on the NATO agenda? Um, certainly uh, the suspension, the U.S. suspension from the INF Treaty. Uh, Russia has now formally signaled that it would, will withdraw. Um, what are your concerns as you prepare for the ministerial meeting on Thursday? Uh, how, how does NATO prepare for its next 70 years? Well, in, in general terms, what we don't like is the unilateralism that the United States uses to take these kind of decisions. For sure, there are reasons from the Russia behavior that make the United States right on saying, well, this treaty doesn't work, I am standing out of it, I am denouncing it. But we would have liked to know it in advance. The same thing we can say about the nuclear deal with Iran, no? or the retreat of the troops from Syria. Hmm? Sometimes you wake up in the morning and you know that uh, the United States has decided to take a decision that affects us, affects our security. No? They insist, you insist on the French troops, just to say an example, doesn't involve us, to stay in Syria and the following day you, you know that the Americans are retreating. Uh, another day you, you, you get notice that you are denouncing the, these intermediate nuclear weapons, which put us in a very different situation, because we Europeans we will be under one threat, the medium-range nuclear weapons, that you will not be suffering. This is an asymmetric situation, and this kind of thing have to be treated among allies in order to be allies. 
Are you concerned that NATO doesn't have a sufficient southern strategy? As you mentioned, for Spain, many of the threats emanate from the south, although you have deployed a company to the eastern flank in Lithuania. Are you concerned that NATO doesn't have an effective southern strategy? Well, NATO was created and has been trained for years in order to face the threat coming from the Soviet Union. It's quite normal that they continue behaving on this way. And the new threats coming from the south, from the Sahel, the terrorism from sub-Saharan Africa is something new for the NATO strategy. And they are maybe not very much investing on it. And there are more Europeans who take care of a flank which is much more important for us today than the Eastern Front. But uh, the NATO strategy has to be at 30, 60 degrees. It's not just looking at the East. It has to be all the world around, involving China, for example. China, for the first time, is being considered by the European Union as something that we have to take care of off and not only considering it as a, a trade partner. The other day, the Europeans, we delivered the first strategic paper in which we consider China a competitor and a threat. And one week from, from now, for the first time, the European Council will meet with the Chinese high-level responsible, responsible in order to start talking in a less, let's say, naive way. From the south and from the far east, far, far east, there are new threats, strategic threats, that uh, we Europeans, we are taking awareness of how important they are. And to none of these threats, we can imagine we could be able to face them out of the NATO framework. Yeah, absolutely. I want to come back to China and uh, some subsequent conversations, but one NATO member is going through what some have described as an existential crisis, and that's the United Kingdom. So I want to turn to Brexit a little bit and really get your uh, taking a step back as you've watched uh, this conversation around European tables. Uh, what, is your, what is your view right now on where Brexit is? European Council President Donald Tusk has called an emergency European Union summit on April 10th. April 12th may be the uh, new uh, cliff edge right now. Help us understand your, your view on this. And of course, Gibraltar did play a role in that conversation. In fact, continues to be a little controversial. I, I see in the news that a, a British member of the European Parliament has just been removed from a particular uh, area of responsibility because of some vocabulary around Gibraltar. So I would welcome your, your thoughts on that. Well, on this case you are mentioning, it was clearly a conflict of interest between his role as representative of the European Parliament and the fact that he is a British, which for sure is affected by the fact he is a British, in order to defend a position which is not his own position, but the position of the whole parliament. 
but this is not a very important issue. It's important for us. No? I, I wouldn't say it's not important because tomorrow the headlines of the Spanish <laughs> newspapers will say the foreign affairs minister considers that Gibraltar is not an important issue. Yes, it is an important issue, <laughs> a very, important, very much important issue. But if you consider that in the frame of what's at the stake with the Brexit, with the United Kingdom living in the European Union, without an agreement, well, then we are facing uh, something that could be considered very damaging for the United Kingdom and for the European Union and for the rest of the world and for Spain also. So we'll do our best in order to avoid this situation. Yes, it's going to be another emergency meeting. I don't know the, the countless emergency meetings that have been called on the last month in order to face the Brexit. And we know very well what the British doesn't want but we still don't want what they, they want. No? They doesn't want anything. No? They doesn't want anything. Not to stay in the European Union, not disagreement, not to live without an agreement, not asking for an extension of the negotiation period, not being a, a part of the uh, a custom union, nothing, nothing. But they will have to tell us what do they want. And we are facing a comic situation. I'm sorry for using the word comic, but it's quite comic. Three years after the British people voted for leaving the European Union, three years later, they will have to vote to choose, to, to elect their representatives to the European Parliament. If they were a British citizen who voted for leaving the European Union, I would like to ask to my political class. How is it that three years later I still have to vote to elect my representative to the parliament of an institution to which I decided to leave? They will have to do it, for sure. But we Spaniards will do our best in order to avoid a hard Brexit, because it's going to be very damaging for all of us, for the very idea of Europe. But let's wait a couple of weeks more in order to try to understand what the British really want to do. So if we can imagine a scenario when the UK does leave the European Union, I think we've been so transfixed by the process and all the, uh, all the political back and forth. But what, what is an EU like without the United Kingdom? It's certainly more balanced towards the south. Uh, the larger countries are now... Uh, more southern disposed. What do you think that leaves the EU? Where is it uh, without, the, without the UK in foreign and security policy as well as economically? Help us understand the EU without the UK. Uh, how, how the EU will look like without the United Kingdom? More to the south, yes, for sure. No? with less military capacities, because the British are maybe the only one country who really takes seriously the defense matters and capacities. Maybe more ready to advance on the political integration, because you can say whatever you want about the United Kingdom's role in Europe, but they never cheated us. They never. They always put very clear on the table that they were not going to work to build a political union in Europe. Remember, 
the Winston Churchill speak in Zurich just after the war, telling us, go and build the United States of Europe, but we will not be part of it, because we are looking to the Atlantic, much more to the Channel. So maybe, maybe without the British, the idea of a more integrated, from a political approach, European Union could be easier to implement. And secondly, the couple, the French and German couple, more and more, it looks necessary, but insufficient. Insufficient? Insufficient. Insufficient. This couple doesn't procreate. This couple is a couple who doesn't create a family. No? doesn't create a, a number of countries supporting this idea. And there are other countries in Europe, like Spain, which is proving a strong resilience. We are the country today that are growing quicker than anyone, anyone else in Europe, which are clearly very much pro-European. We have always been. And we can, role, we can play an important role. Maybe the whole, the political vacuum that the United Kingdom is living in Europe after he is living, if he lives one day or another, can be taken by, this, by the Spanish, by, by Spain, because we are a medium-sized country, uh, an economy which is growing quickly, although we have a lot of problems, for sure, and where the society is one of the most pro-European societies of the continent. Absolutely. Just one procedural question. So if the British would request a long-term ex uh, extension, your recommendation to the Prime Minister would be to approve that long-term extension if it were requested? Uh, if it were requested, I'm sure it will be requested. You're sure? Well, sure. Uh, <laughs> Any certainty sure. I'll write down. You can, you can never be sure about what the British will decide to do. But uh, if they don't want anything, uh, the logical answer will be, let me think about it, give me more time. More time, it doesn't mean two weeks or two months. Because in two weeks or two months, we are not going to find a new solution no, by a magical procedure. By the end of the year would be a good, uh, a good time bracket in order for them to decide what to do. No? Sure. No, absolutely. So, which brings us one of the complicating factors to that extension is, as you mentioned, the European Parliament election. So I thought we'd take a moment and talk about those very important elections. You told me yourself you're, going, you're running in the European Parliament elections. Yes, I will be running for the second time. Absolutely. So tell me, what are some of the key factors for Spain uh, as they look towards the European Parliament elections? What are the key issues? Is it the economy? Is it migration? Last year, Spain received over 60,000 migrants trying to receive the, the EU country with the most <coughs> migrants. What is the dominant issue uh, for the European Parliament elections, in your view? These are going to be the most important elections for the future of Europe that we have never had. Uh, until now, the elections, the European elections, were kind of a remake of the national elections, because they were not important issues at stake where the European citizens 
could decide clearly among different offers. Today, it is the case. Uh, Mr. Macron sends a letter to the Europeans, and immediately there are answers from other countries presenting a bracket of choices. We will have to discuss about migration, for sure. There's a big divide today in Europe, east-west, about migration problems. Some countries willing to close themselves in order to prevent any kind of migration, building walls, you will know something about it, building walls in order to isolate from the environment, not only about Muslims, about anyone, and creating a kind of Europe which is, uh, from my point of view, unsustainable, just for demographic reasons. And on the West, and Spain is there, other people who are more open, understanding that we need migrants to a certain level, we have to control, and you have to order migration, but we cannot forbid it, because it is impossible. Facing Africa, we are 15 kilometers from the north of Africa. <coughs> and this big divide has been created on the last two, three years, after the big push of people coming from Syria war. But this was an accident. The big issue is the demographic growth of Africa. In the next years, 20 years, it will, 20, 25 years, we have 1,000 million, 1,000 million more of African people. And this put the question of migration on the table in a very, very accurate and a very deep importance. And then there is the divide between the North and the South about the Euro crisis. So we have two divides in Europe the north-south divide about economic issues, how do we manage a monetary union without having all the things that a monetary union has to have in order to be stable, uh, banking union, fiscal union, political union, and then we have the identity issue related with demography and migration, which is the divide east-west. So we will have plenty of things to discuss about. And I hope that it will be a discussion with arguments, not based on fake news, because one of the biggest problems that we are facing in Europe, I suppose also here, is the fact that politics is much contaminated, more and more contaminated by things which are not true. And this disturbs the perception of the people about the real things they have to understand and about what they have to decide. I think it's a big threat for democracy and the next European election, we have to face it. Can the EU find a compromise on migration? They have tried for three plus years. Can a compromise be found? If I have to tell you the truth, if I were not the Minister for Foreign Affairs, I will tell you that this going to be very difficult, almost impossible. Yeah. Because it's not a matter of uh, a little bit more, a little bit less. We are not talking about a continuous variable. No? We are talking about uh, uh, blank and white, yes or not, a binary decision. 
and you cannot make a deal in a binary decision saying among 0 and 1 there is 1.5. No, there is not, no 1.5. It's either 0 or 1. And the, the, the division is, is put on these terms. I do not want any kind of migrant. I've been in the office of Mr. Orban in Hungary, talking and discussing with him. By the way, he's a very emphatic, uh, very interesting people to talk about, and he's very clear. I am building walls. I don't want any kind of migrants. I will look for a solution about my demographic problems by pushing the demography of my country. And I will, I will refuse any kind of deal in order to have a quarter of the migrants arriving to Europe in another shore. And this is a very difficult situation, uh, attitude to, to make an arrangement. So it's going to be, the people have to say their saying. It's not just among governments. The elections call directly to the people. And this is the occasion for us, the Spanish, to talk to the Hungarians and the Greeks to talk to the Germans in order to try to build a common European approach. So I'm so glad you raised Prime Minister Orban because the concern that I have is about the rise of illiberalism in Europe, the rise of xenophobia, anti-Semitism. It seems as the uh, socialist uh, Spitzenkandidat, Franz Timberman, has made this a very powerful argument. Uh, the European Union has used Article 7 proceedings against Hungary and Poland because they have not kept faith with EU values. What is your view on the rise of illiberalism within the European Union? Mr. Orban is a very interesting interlocutor, but he has moved his country in a very different direction, very much against Brussels, against uh, European values. What is your answer to that? Well, the first thing is that uh, he has two-thirds of the vote. So we have to take into account, if we live in a democratic system, uh, people have to be taken into account. No? If people support this kind of approaches, we have to ask ourselves why is so. It's not just a matter of someone coming from the moon. It has deep roots on the understanding of the people. And today in Europe, we have a little bit of, uh, coming back to the past. No? The idea that uh, integration is something that uh, has uh, collateral effects and it would be much better to go back home to identify with ourselves, to, to get back control, like the Brexit has said. No? Let's be the way we want to be. We don't need to go to Brussels and to make agreements with the others. No? And if we want to be the, this way, let us be this way. And this is a big danger for the European integration because the European integration wanted to, to, to build a society based on a set of common values, shared values, and these values are being jeopardized in some European countries. Not only in the Eastern countries, uh, the Brexit is a good example of that also. No? Let's get back control of ourselves don't have to spend as much money as they said helping other countries in Europe, less solidarity, and in some countries 
a kind of a performing democracy, which is not exactly the same way that we understand in, in the traditional European values. This is one of the biggest problems we are facing in Europe. But you care to make Go back home, Sorry. close borders, let's manage by ourselves, less solidarity with the neighbors. And mm, this happens also inside the European state. This happened in Italy, this happened in Spain, this happened in the United Kingdom, this happened in Belgium. No? The, centrifugal, the centrifugal tendencies in some uh, nation states is also something that jeopardizes the future of the European Union. I was just going to say, are, how concerned are you about the Italian government? Here is a, uh, a new combination of uh, sort of non-established parties that are now taking Italy in a very different direction. They're quarreling amongst themselves as well on migration, even uh, their approach to China. How concerned are you about the Italian government right now uh, and its challenge to Brussels? Well, when Mr. Salvini says, Chiudami porti, no? we closed harbors, the immediate consequence is that the flow of migrants going to Italy, now they go to Spain. But once again, we have to understand why these people have such a strong support. These people doesn't come from the moon. No? These people have the vote of the people. And the more they say, Kyudami Porti, and the more they say, let's put a wall and we don't accept migrants, the more they get votes. So this is the deep issue we have to study as you, as uh, researchers and thinkers and, and people like me, as political actors. And we have to understand that several years ago, Italy was left alone without any kind of European solidarity in front of a wave of migrants coming from Africa, several hundreds of thousands of people. And the societies have a certain limit in in order to be able to integrate. And if you tell them every day that this is a big threat and they go to the TV screens, uh, they look at a phenomena which looks out of control and there are a lot of people dying trying to uh, go across the Mediterranean, then you create a feeling of fear. Fear is a feeling that is very easy to, to create, no? to develop among people and the European societies feel fear, and the Italian society feels fear. The economics in Italy has been, have been stagnant, not economic growth, not productivity growth, since they became member of the Eurozone. Is this the, the, is this the fault of the Euro, or it's an intrinsic uh, structural problem of themselves? I don't think it's the fault of the euro, but it's very easy to say it's the fault of the euro. So today in Italy, there are, it's growing a kind of anti-European attitude, because first, they felt no solidarity from other countries to face a migration problem, and secondly, they believe that the, being member of the European Union is not a good thing for them. The polls say, in Spain, 78% of the people big majority, are uh, saying that it's a good thing for Spain. It has been a good thing for Spain to be member of the European Union, almost 80% of the people, 
in spite of the 10 years crisis that they started in 2008, in spite of that, 80% of the people say that's a good thing for us. In Italy, it's 48%, less than half percent. When less than half percent of the people believe that's a good thing, it's not uh, difficult to understand that I present to the elections, I have the support of the people. You're a veteran of the European Parliament. Would you care to make some predictions about what we may see? Uh, some are very soberly predicting that the Euroscepticism will rise in the European Parliament on both the left and the right. We'll see the traditionally important EPP and S&D families not do as well. Um, what do you predict and will we see the Spitzenkandidaten system work this time or perhaps not work this time? Last elections, 70%, 70%, more than 70, 73 or 74% of the young people didn't participate in the European elections. Understanding for young people, the people from 18 years old to 30 years old. So, <laughs> it takes a long time to, to in, in Europe to be considered young people. You have to go over 30 years. No? In my time, it was shorter than that. Well, okay. Between 18 and 30 years, 70% or more of the people didn't participate in the European elections. That's a catastrophe. Yeah. That's a catastrophe for any kind of political project. If the young people doesn't participate on it, they don't care to elect the people who represent them, it means that they don't, not only don't, they don't care, they don't understand, yeah. which is worst. Uh, the big issue at these European elections is, the question is, will the Eurosceptics, Europhobics, I can't put them together. No? Go, we'll have more than one-third of the seats. It means, does the others will have less than two-thirds of the seats? Well, this will be a very bad news, because it means, as you know in Europe, the most important decisions are taken by a qualified majority, which requires two-thirds of the votes. If the pro-Europeans wouldn't have two-thirds of the votes, then the institutional game will be blocked because no decision could be taken in the parliament. I personally believe it's not going to happen. I personally believe it's not going to happen. I don't think the Europhobics will have more than one-third of the votes. And I will do my best <laughs> in order to try to avoid that this could happen. But at the same time, I am a little bit worried because if you add up all kind of Euroscepticism, all kind of Europhobics, which are very heterogeneous people, but if you add all of them together, there are a lot of people. Look in France. You add up the votes from Mrs. Le Pen and Mr. Mélenchon, which for sure, they don't represent the same thing from the left and from the right, they are quite different. But they are united on a certain refusal of the European project. They are closer to 40%. Yeah. In Italy, if you add up Mr. Salvini and Mr. Di Maio, uh, they are closer to 40%. Uh, 
uh, we will have to work a lot. And this is going to be a good occasion for doing pedagogy, which I think is the most important thing a politician can do, to try to explain to people which are the things about what they have to decide. And when I see that 70% of the young people don't care to vote for European elections, then I have I, I understand that we have, a, we have to work a lot in order to make people understand how important these elections are. And do you know why people don't believe these elections are not important? Because when you go to vote, uh, you vote for a government. Or you go to vote for the presidential elections here. Or you go to vote for the uh, parliamentarian elections in Europe. You are aware that what you are voting for is for the president of the executive branch, because there is an executive branch. In Europe, when you vote for the parliamentarians of the European Parliament, you don't know exactly what you are voting for, because there is not an executive branch. There is, you are not voting for a government. It's a, it's a fuzzy situation, because we, all of us have in mind the Montesquieu scheme, no? The judiciary, <laughs> an executive and a, and a legislative branches. In Europe, it's not so clear. We don't understand the system Europe works because it doesn't obey to the Montesquieu scheme. And we don't understand still how does it work. So before we get to the European Parliament elections, however, we have some Parliament elections in Spain, which will be on April the 28th. What are the key issues that are shaping and driving that election, uh, in your view? And uh, help us understand, in some ways, Spain is mirroring the, the larger European perspective. We see political fragmentation uh, on the left and on the right. We see the traditional establishment centrist parties losing popularity. Help us understand what we should be watching for on April the 28th. Well, the most important question mark about the future of these elections, about the result, the outcome of these elections, is how important is the far right in Spain? You know that, uh, maybe you don't know because you don't follow the uh, politics in Spain as close as I am, uh, but in Spain, we were very happy that we didn't have a far-right party. And we were saying all the time, we don't have Mr. Salvini, we don't have... Uh, uh, Salvini is not far-right. Uh, we don't have um, Mrs. Le Pen, we don't have... Uh, well, I, I don't want to put names, I don't want to have problems later. But we, we didn't have a far-right party. We have a conservative party, who was able to put together everyone from the nostalgic of the Franco dictatorship until the Christian Democrats and liberals, which is quite difficult to have all that's, of these people together. That's an together, expansive no? tent, well, yes. it, was a big, it was a big effort, but the popular party in Spain had the merit of putting together from the nostalgia of Franco until the Christian Democrats and liberals. Well, this is falling apart. And suddenly, in the past regional elections in Andalusia and the south of Spain, without the polls being able to foresee that, a far-right party appeared having 12% of the votes. 
a very far right party, a far, far right party. Uh, and then, uh, well, this surprises us uh, from any point of view. This surprises us and we are not sure what is going to happen on the next general elections. What happened in Andalusia and the south of Spain could happen in the rest of the country? Uh, frankly speaking, it don't, I don't know. And this is going to be the most important thing. That's why the next general elections in Spain are also a little bit existential, because they could, they could bring the far right to a very important role. Do you think what has charged this dynamic have been events surrounding Catalonia since 2017? Is this driving the electorate? Is it the economy? Tell me what's, what is motivating the Spanish electorate right now to get to this election? Well, uh, it's difficult to, to make a resume of a, such a complex thing. Now, there is a fragmentation in the political representation because there is a fragmentation in the society. Yeah. Hmm? If the political representation plays the role of representing, and if it fragments, it is because the society has been fragmented. And it has been fragmented at least for three reasons. First, economic crisis. We are overcoming the economic crisis in terms of macroeconomic indicators. We have already the same GMP per capita that we had in 2009. So it was a lost decade, and in macroeconomic terms, you can say we overcome it. We are, the way we, we are where we were in 2009. But uh, uh, if you look closer, you could realize that the crisis has led behind a wounded society, much more unequalitarian, with, uh, we have 20% of the children on the edge of poverty, with uh, people suffering from the crisis and getting a kind of resentment against the system. Secondly, due to the fear of migration. And maybe what has happened in Andalusia is due to the fact that Andalusia is the door of Spain facing Africa, and people coming from Africa put their foot in Andalusia first. So maybe it has influence. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's not going to be the same thing in the north of Spain. And third, for sure, I am very sad to have to say that, the Catalan issue, I myself, I am a Catalan. Uh, and you know, then there is always a kind of uh, action and reaction, no? right. no? the national the nationalism and the separatism in Catalonia has awakened the Spanish nationalism. And now there is a fight of, uh, of nationalism. And maybe both parts take advantage of that. It's been difficult to watch the politics um, the last two years, I have to say, uh, from afar. Um, particularly now, we know this is a charged moment as the trials begin. Um, uh, from, from those who sought the independence referendum. This has been a tough issue for the government to, to manage. And what is, you know, if, 
if the election turns out and the Socialist Party is given a, a mandate to lead again, will there be any different approach to the Catalan issue? Should, should the Socialist uh, continue on in government or continue on in the same direction under the current government? Well, there are difficult times for sure. About the trial, the only thing I can say is that in Spain there is a separation of powers. The judiciary is independent. They had a job to do. And as a member of the government, I wish not to interfere with any kind of, of comments about the job that the judges have to perform. The, in any case, if you are interested in that, is being broadcasted by TV every minute of the trial. So you can by yourself watch at it and see how it happens. And secondly, this government, the socialist government, who came to the government through an unusual procedure, yes. unusual but perfectly constitutional, which is a motion of censure. It is the first time it happened in the history of the constitutional Spain, and it worked. Uh, if we continue uh, in power, we will continue doing the same thing, which is dialogue inside the constitutional framework. Uh, it would be difficult to say that we would perform a dialogue out of the constitutional framework. No government can, could do that. No? We have a constitution, and everything has to happen inside the constitution. So every request in order to grant solutions which are not in the constitutional framework, they will not be possible to implement. And this is something that my prime minister, Mr. Sanchez, has been saying once and again, once and again. And the constitutional court has already said that uh, for sure you can ask about questions related with the integrity of the country. But this has to be done in the framework of a constitutional reform. Without a constitutional reform, you cannot put some questions. For example, could we hold a referendum in Spain about the death penalty, which is forbidden by constitution? Could we go to the people and ask, about if they like or not the death penalty? No, because the Constitution has already provided an answer. If you want to change this, you have to change the Constitution. So why, do we, why did we hold a referendum on NATO? Because the Constitution says nothing about NATO. There's nothing. So we can choose about something which is not constitutionally defined. And third, I think we have to provide reasons. We have to provide arguments. We have to explain, once again, pedagogy, in order to explain people what does it mean in our world independency. And the Brexit is a good example. When you see how difficult it is to take a country out of the European Union, a country that doesn't share the currency, doesn't share the borders, and finally is part of a market, not more. How difficult it is to disconnect the, European, the United Kingdom from the European Union, I think it's a good example of, of people to understand how difficult it is, it would be,
to take a part of Spain out of Spain unilaterally without taking into account the strong links, social, humans, and economics, forging the history that relates to Spain as a whole, especially unilaterally. This is the key word. You cannot say, I'm living, breaking the Constitution, and without any possibility of putting that into practice. Mr. Minister, thank you so much. I want to turn very briefly to the audience. We have a, a few minutes, and uh, I'd, I'd love to just ask the audience to please identify yourself. Please make that question very crisp so we can grab a few and have the, the minister respond. I'll, I'm going to add one of my questions to the end. We didn't talk about China. President Xi Jinping visited Spain uh, last fall. Um, quite a bit of an increase in investment and would wonder whether some of that investment did not change Spain's position and its abstention on the Uyghur statement. So I wanted your thoughts on that. So I'm going to add a China question to your list before I turn to the audience. Sir, if we can have you, and a microphone is coming to you in the white shirt. Please, if you could stand and please give us your name. Speak very slowly and clearly into the microphone. Sometimes it's a little difficult for us to hear. Up sure, here. sorry. I'm Lee Farron with ABC News. Uh, I wanted to ask about the curious incident, the North Korean embassy last month. Uh, speculation immediately was that there was some link to the CIA somehow in the Spanish media. The U.S. has denied it. Has the Spanish government uh, found any links to the U.S. government with the break-in at the North Korean embassy? And has the Spanish uh, sorry? And has the Spanish government uh, had any discussions with the U.S. about the break-in? I'll repeat all the questions. I think we'll be able to take I one, the word, one more, sir. Uh, Holly, right back there, the gentleman there. So sorry, I'm so sorry. Hi, um, my name is Jorge. I work here at the National Institutes of Health. I, you mentioned that the rage of the far right in Spain was due to Catalonia and the economic inequality. Don't you think that also the corruption scandals and the politicians not being able to be um, honest with the, with the people has something to do with um, the rage in other parties? Thank you. Perfect. Why don't I uh, stop there and let me uh, repeat them. So the I'm, I'm very sorry. Every time I come to this stage, I realize that I don't speak English a lot. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's no worries. So this was, uh, uh, the gentleman asked about the incident at the North Korean embassy uh, yes, um, and the Spanish government's both response to that, uh, anything you care to share with the audience, uh, particularly uh, involvement with the U.S. government. And then the second question was, do you think one of the motivating factors for creating the far-right Vox Party was the frustration with the endemic corruption or views of, uh, of corruption uh, of, of, the, of the elite? That was the second question. And then if you care to answer the China, President yeah. Xi Jinping's visit, there's there, 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 well, you can about choose the, from. About the first question, uh, there is a judiciary investigation, and I don't have any news that I could share with you about it, uh, really. Uh, I don't know who is involved in it. You know as much as I know about some people who are living somewhere. But uh, I don't have any kind of information. Not that I cannot share. I don't have any kind of information additionally to, to what has been published. No? And yes, you are right, for sure. It's also something that uh, influences. It, it was already ha having a strong importance on the emerging of Podemos. No? 
when Podemos emerged, I don't know, four years ago, it's always saying, well, there are uh, corrupted lead and we have to fight against it. And this is a very, I wouldn't say easy, but uh, for sure shocking argument because there are reasons, unhappily, unhappily, there are reasons in order to use this argument. And uh, from the far right and from the far left is being used. They are right on using it, but uh, to denounce corruption, it doesn't make a policy. It's part of the arguments that people can use, and it's part of the reaction of the people who are really upset with it. No? And Vox is using it as Podemos used on the same way five or four years ago. China, can I ask you just that last uh, Sorry, I'm not going to let you no, go. China, the, the, the president of China came to Madrid. He was received by the king with all the apparatus of the Spanish monarchy which is more or less the same one that the British monarchy, and uh, with dinners in the royal palace. And, uh, very nice. Very, very nice, very, very nice. We can compete with the Windsor dynasty and, uh, and with the royal guard and everything. And we had interesting discussions and we signed agreements. We didn't sign the memorandum of understanding about the Silk and Bell Road, uh, because we still have to think about it. China is also a dividing factor among Europeans. Yes. You have to recognize it. Huh? And some member states pay a lot of attention to China. And the other day I was talking with one of my colleagues, foreign affairs minister, he told me in the last two years I've been meeting with my colleague, China colleague, 12 times. 12? 12 times. Wow. And there are a lot of relationship with at least there are 11 countries who signed this memorandum of understanding. Portugal, by the way, signed it. And there are a lot of Chinese investment in Portugal, which upset the Americans. The United States is very upset with the idea that the Chinese companies are going to buy uh, more than half percent, more than half of the shares of Electricité de Portugal, you know? Portugal electricity provider, producer, no? because they have also interest in here in the States. And for us, for the Spanish, it's not a problem. It's not a problem. Until now, the degree of our relationships are very good because they haven't broken any framework. And we don't, we don't care. We, we, but I know that it's becoming something for Europeans that awakes a certain degree of precaution precaution. And for the first time, we call China um, a systemic. No, but what are the precise word, no? Systemic challenge. A challenge. A systemic and a strategic challenge. We don't use the word threat, just challenge. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think we've moved that needle over a little bit here exactly. in Washington. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Minister, thank you so much. We've really uh, run you through your paces of uh, transatlantic relations and certainly European relations, domestic politics, and then we broadened out at the very end to talk a little bit about the future challenges, China. Thank you so much for being with here. We're glad you're here to celebrate 70th thank anniversary you. of NATO. Please join me in thanking the minister. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Is that okay? <laughs>